500 came to her house a week. Can you imagine? That's, it blows my mind. And uh, I started thinking, you know, what about our vision? What's our vision here? And I think it's, our vision is to be like Sarah Osborne's. It's to build our life around Jesus, our messy lives around Jesus, certainly. Learn to do that. Uh, it's not doing church that's building a life around Jesus and then wanting to be a part of him using us to help others do the same, an actual movement that actually impacts Waco, that reaches, renews pastors, churches, communities, homes, individual lives in Waco. That's the vision. That's what we're believing God to do. I love that Sarah Osborne, in a time when uh, women were not necessarily um, put forward to be leaders in the church, and in a time where uh, you went from town to town and buggy to buggy, that 500 souls came, seeking and say, came to seek and hear more about Jesus through her ministry. Pretty amazing. Okay, uh, i got to share you, you this too. All right, this is best. From the earlier sermon this morning, this is what one child got out of it. There's a pulpit. There's me there, and I'm saying this. Stop my mom from telling me what to do. <laughs> it's beautiful, beautiful. That is what we are all about. Kids, I am on your side. <laughs> Mothers, knock it off. Stop it. Just stop it, stop it. Um, one year ago, almost to today, we wrapped up Romans 1 through 8 and started Ecclesiastes. Can you believe that? Those of you that have been around that long, this time last year, we started Ecclesiastes, and we ended just in time before Romans 9. When we did that, some of you wondered, is Jeff losing his edge? Did Jeff, like, become a coward and not want to preach Romans 9? Why did Jeff stop at Romans 8? I heard you grumblers. I knew you were out there, and I heard you. So today, you should say something like, Jeff the intrepid preacher. Jeff the bold. Jeff the brave, right? Like Samwise Ganji. Okay, so let's state the obvious. Romans 9 is a hard passage, right? It's a hard passage. Romans 9 is like being hit by a Mack truck. But if you survive the impact, that truck is loaded with fruit. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. We're reading from Romans 9, 1 through 13. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, 
but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Oh, Lord, we, um, we acknowledge this is a hard passage. We acknowledge that it's hard, but we acknowledge, too, that it's clear. Um, it's hard to avoid the clarity, uh, but it is easy uh, to get emotionally um, turned inside out by it. And so we are honest, and we, um, we honestly approach your scriptures and ask you to speak, and ask you to work, and ask you to act, and ask you to put us back together again uh, in these words. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so my apologies to you community group leaders. I did not have enough time this week. It was one of those weeks to get the questions to you. So here's what I recommend. Uh, I recommend that you read this passage and then have lots of fun with it. And if that doesn't suit you, you better take good notes in this service right now. Okay? All right. Most church people uh, are on board with the Bible, right? Most church people believe the Bible is God's word. It's central to Christianity. It's central for salvation. It's central for personal and corporate faith and worship and work and mission and community and renewal and ministry, right? So if a church person is asked, can God's word fail? A church person is going to say, of course not. It's impossible, right? But then there's always this like, nagging whisper, though, that, that comes in and says something, are you sure? I mean, think of all those unanswered prayers you have, and you were praying for things that are clearly mapped out in the Word, Scripture, as God's will for your life, and they're unanswered. Can you really say that? I mean, think of all the family and friends and acquaintances you have that have walked away from the Lord exhausted, fatigued from his silence and his absence. Are you sure God's word cannot fail? Then there are others of us, though, that we see a conflict between reason and science, and so when we're asking God's word fail, of course we say, yes, fails every day in every way. I mean, let's start with the creation story. Really? Let's move to the flood. Need I say more? How about the parting of a Red Sea and all the miracles and signs and wonders in the Old Testament? And then, I mean, come on. How, how do you have this mixture of divine words through human words? What is that all about? And then you have this man who walks this earth 2,000 years ago claiming to be God and then rising from the dead. Of course God's words fail. I don't even believe they're God's words to begin with. Now, whatever you thought Romans 9 was about, whatever you thought it was about, and I know you have an opinion, the big idea and the big point is this. Can God's words fail? Can they? Look at verse 6. 
but it is not as though the word of God has failed. So Romans 1 through 8 is about the gospel, right? We saw Romans 1 through 8, the gospel. Good news, not good advice. A righteousness received, not a righteousness achieved. Things that Jesus has done, not things that we do. It is finished, not fight for your lives. And then you got Romans 12 through 16. It's about the gospel applied. So it's about, it's about a gospel life. What does it look like if you actually believe chapters 1 through 8? What does it look like if the gospel actually goes deep into your bones? What does it look like when it moves into your personal life, in your home, in your workplace, in your marriage? Well, that's chapters 12 through 16. And then we have these three chapters, 9 through 11, three complex and difficult chapters. How do they relate to, these, to this book? How does 9 through 11 relate to 1 and 8 and 12 through 16? Well, many say they don't relate at all. There's no relationship between them. They go so far as to say, listen, I think Paul was in one of his weird parenthetical parentheses that went on forever for three chapters. Or maybe, remember when it talked about him going into the fourth heaven and having that vision? Maybe he didn't have space for it in Corinthians and put it here. This is where it is. That's why so many skip Romans 9 through 11. And because they're cowards. However... If we look carefully at chapters 9 through 11, we're going to see a connection between 1 and 8 and 12 and 16. It's not hard to imagine after chapters 1 through 8 and the triumph of a Jesus justification, a triumph of good news over good advice, a triumph of grace salvation over self-salvation, a triumph of grace or righteousness received and not achieved, that someone asks, but what about Jewish people? I mean, what about them? I mean, if chapters 1 through 8 are the power of God for salvation, a salvation that was embedded in Israel's history and incubated in Israel's history, right? Why are they not responding to Jesus? I mean, at chapter 8, we're talking about this inseparable, indomitable, this unending love of God. Does that love fail on Israel? We talk about this more than conquer reality in Jesus Christ. Does that fail on Israel? So can God's word fail? Did it fail for Israel? Does that mean that don't be so quick to think that God can take you all the way home? Don't be so quick to hope in good news, good words to carry you all the way home. This is why Paul says in verse 4 and 5, he mentions they are Israelites and then to them belong. Look at all the privileges if you have your Bible or an electronic device. Look at all the privileges. Look at all the benefits that are there for being racial, physical Israel. I mean, what do these privileges, what do these benefits mean? I spent some time in the Iron Curtain before and after. Soviet Union, Eastern Bloc countries. When I was there before, the churches were atheistic museums and they were headquarters for communist party parties, I guess, right? After the curtain went down, the churches completely changed. They went back to being churches. But what was fascinating, if you went after the Iron Curtain went down, you saw a church, you didn't see it because scaffolding was all around it. 
Everywhere you went in Eastern Europe, everywhere you went in the Soviet Union, every town, every church, scaffolding was around. They were renovating the church. So the question is, what happens when a church is renovated? Does the scaffolding stay up? No. The scaffolding, the scaffolding is serving, pointing to, building the church. The benefits and the privileges of Israel were spiritual scaffolding. If we were to be more biblically accurate, we would call it covenantal scaffolding, old covenant scaffolding, pointing to, preparing, building up Jesus and his salvation. When Jesus and his salvation showed up, the scaffolding goes away. But Israel didn't want it to go away. Israel put their hope and their trust in the scaffolding, not in the Savior. They rejected Jesus. And so Paul is saying, did God's word fail for them? This is the big idea of Romans 9. Please get that. The big idea is the answer to can God's word fail. The big idea of Romans 9 is not beating up Arminians. And it's not predestination terminators. And it's not the mad Calvinist disease. You know, mad cow, mad cow. You get what I'm saying? Right? We had a saying when I was in campus ministry or even in my early years that when someone, when someone began to get the God-centeredness of God, you had to cage them up because they became a mad Calvinist, right? And then after about two years, you could let them out so they had their minds back and their hearts back, right? Okay, so now we're really getting warmed up, aren't we? We're getting into it. If the big idea is, can God's word fail, then the answer, here's the first thing I want us to see about the text, and I saw it this week when I was studying it, and it blew me away, and it still blows me away. If you and I get the answer to get, can God's word fail, if you get the answer and it gets deep in your bones, you know what it does to you and me? It does what it did to Paul. Look at verses 1 through 3. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow. Great sorrow means sorrow or pain on top of pain. So it's a stacked pain. It's a stacked sorrow. And unceasing anguish in my heart. Unceasing anguish means unending, non-stopping shredding of your soul. One of my favorite movies of all time is Tombstone. And Tombstone, there's Wyatt Earp, and he goes up to a dude, and this is a bad guy. See, the bad guy slapped other people around all the time until Wyatt Earp came to town. When Wyatt Earp came to town, Wyatt Earp slapped him around. And he slapped him, and the guy just stood there. Slapped him again, the guy just stood there, and he says, are you just going to stand there and bleed? Oh, it's the best line ever. You guys see that, right? That's what's happening to Paul. I'm just standing here. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to my flesh. Paul is in emotional anguish for his people, for his kinsmen, for his family, for his friends. 
for his relatives, for his acquaintances. Paul is in emotional anguish for those who don't know Jesus. For those who wreck their lives. For those who want to be their own savior. He stands there and bleeds. Whatever the answer is to can God's word fail, you know what it produces? Whatever the answer is? Love for the lost. Love for messed up people like you and me. And not just any kind of love. Do you see that? This is a substitutionary love. You know what kind of love this is? This is the kind of love that bends for another. This is the kind of love that says, I lose so you win. This is the kind of love that says, diminish me so you can get elevated. This is the kind of love that says, listen, God, you give me a choice. God says, I give you a choice, Paul. You or them. And Paul says, them. Choose them, God. Please choose them. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. This is the deep waters of gospel love. This is the deep waters of Jesus' substitutionary love for messed up people. For you, for me, that's how Jesus' heart beats in this passage, a controversial passage. Don't miss that. Okay, there are so many implications to what we just said. I'm just going to briefly touch on two. This kind of love that Paul is demonstrating and embodying here is what a life looks like when it actually believes chapters 1 through 8 and gets impacted about chapter 9. So the question is, you know, how do you... How do we know, individually, as a family, as a church, how do we know that we're growing in grace? How do we know that we're growing and learning to build our messy lives around Jesus, our, our parenting, our, our marriages, our, our homes, our work? How, how do we know we're doing that? You know what the answer is? Make a choice. You or them. I choose them. Then you know. If the heart of the gospel is substitutionary love, then the heart of Christians is substitutionary love. What this means is we don't sweat the small stuff or the stupid stuff. You know what that stuff is? Stupid stuff like don't drink or chew or go with girls that do. That's just stupid. Sinners sin. Get over it. Messed up people make messes. Get over it. Get over it. Love messed up people because you're one of them. Love sinners because we are one of them. Without judgment, without accusation, without feeling superior or better or condescending, 
You remember our two lost sons series in Luke 15? You remember how messed up people flocked to Jesus? The church is supposed to be a place where they still do. Second quick implication, Paul's placement of substitutionary love in chapter 9, isn't that bizarre? You know what that means? All the controversial truths that surround chapter 9, all those controversial truths are supposed to forge deeply loving people. So, this means if we walk away from Romans 9 and we want to argue and we want to go blog on social media and we want to write a big old article against people that don't hold this view or whatever we want to do, then we don't get Romans 9. If you're all excited about going back to your community group tonight or next week and you can't wait to win the argument, you can't wait to move doctrinally through this, you missed Romans 9. But if you walk away from this passage and deep love gets forged in your soul, you got Romans 9. All right, so let's move through the passage in really quick time. Can God's word fail? Let's, re- let's let Romans 9 answer. Please, this is not me. This is the scriptures. This is where I hide behind the scriptures. Uh, the first answer is no, because we have to first define who God's people are. Or who is Israel? That's what we have to define, right? Look at 6. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For Paul's saying, let me tell you, or let me explain why, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, not all who are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac, not Ishmael, shall your offspring be named. Paul is saying there's a difference between racial, physical Israel and true spiritual Israel. Racial, physical Israel, true spiritual issue, Israel. There's a difference. He's saying not all who descend racially and physically from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are true Israel. And then the flip side, he's saying, not all who do not descend, in fact, all who do not descend from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, many of those that do not descend are true Israel. In fact, in Romans 4, Paul, uh, Paul said it earlier, he said, look, Abraham is the father of the circumcised and the uncircumcised. He's the father of all who believe which includes Gentiles like us, right? So that's why he says plainly in verse 4, this means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise or the children of the gospel or the children of chapters 1 through 8. Those are the ones who are counted as offspring. So true Israel or God's people is defined, driven, (laughs) determined by the gospel. True Israel, God's true people are those that build their lives on good news, not good advice, who rest and rely and rejoice in a Jesus salvation, not a self-salvation, who say, man, it is finished, not fight for your life. Whoever rests, trusts, in Jesus and his salvation, that person is a Christian. That person is the people of God. 
All right. Second, can God's word fail? Let's let Romans 9 answer. The second answer is no, because God's word is the same thing as God's action. Oh, I love this. This is perfect for the Gideons. Look at verse 9. For, let me explain why. He's still going here, right? This is what the promise or the gospel or chapters 1 through 8 said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. This is God speaking to Abraham. These are God's words to Abraham. These words acted. <laughs> next year, Sarah had a son. These words performed. Next year, Abraham had a son or Sarah had a son. These words achieved, worked, exerted. <coughs> Next year, Sarah had a son. God's acting and God's speaking are one and the same thing. When God says, let there be light, light did not say, let me think about it. When God comes in in Romans 1 through 8 and says, I justify the ungodly, those words, justified. Justification is a declaration from God that you are now righteous and the righteous of another, and it happens every time he says it. So what does this mean? Where is God? Where do you find God? Where is God at work in your life and in the world? You know what the answer is according to this passage? What the answer is we're going to see in chapter 10? Go to the Word. Find Jesus and His active personal presence released into your life in His words. I don't know where God is. Go to the Word. Where do you find God? Go to the Word. That's what this passage is saying. All right. Can God's words fail? Let Romans 9 answer the third answer. Now we're getting into the thick of it. No, because of electing grace. Ooh, there we go. Let's look at verses 10 through 13. And, and means, I'm, and I'm continuing my argument. I'm going to explain why. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. Now this is a parenthesis. This is a parenthesis. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Now we're back. Now we're back. She was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Gulp. There it is. Here's our plan. We're going we're gonna to explain what electing grace is. And then we're going to deal with all the objections next week. Yeah, I'm doing that. <laughs> and the reason why I'm doing that is because I'm just following the logic of the passage, because that's what Paul does. In verses 14 through 18, he takes the first major objection. In 19 through 26, he takes the, no, 20, yeah, 26, he takes the next major objection. So objections to it we'll look at next week, all right? Okay, so what is electing grace? First, you need to find the definition of the Greek word in verse 11. Here's the definition. God it's to pull out or to choose. So it's to be pulled out of something or chosen for something. Pulled out of something, chosen for something. So what this means is God pulls out or chooses Jacob for salvation. In this context, notice how salvation is, is categorized or the field of meaning for it. Jacob is pulled out so he's not, what, verse 3, accursed. 
Jacob is pulled out so he's not what? Verse 3, cut off from Christ. Uh, Jacob is chosen to be what? True Israel. Verse 6, Jacob is chosen to be God's offspring, which means literally a child of God, a son or daughter of God. That's verse 7. Jacob is chosen to be a child of the promise or a child of the gospel or a child of Romans 1 through 8. That's verse 8. So God pulls or chooses Jacob for salvation, and now here's the difficult part, but not Esau. Verse 12, the older will serve the younger. Verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Hated is a Hebrew idiom. It's a figure of speech that has a different meaning than the individual words. When we say it's raining cats and dogs, that means differently than the individual words. Cats, dogs are not falling from the sky. Well, this is a Hebrew idiom that's used all over the scriptures, all over the ancient world. Jesus uses it when he's talking to his disciples and says, look, you have to trust me. You've got to rest and rely on me more than your family. You have to hate your family in comparison to me. Your family can't save you. I alone can save you. So I get all your faith, all your love, <clears throat> all your allegiance. I still got throat stuff going on. You see that? One, so it's not literally hate them. He's preferring. It's, a, it's an idiom to communicate the overwhelming superiority of allegiance to God. And in this case, one theologian puts it this way, God chose to put Jacob above Esau. Okay? Need a little G2. Being <clears throat> grace. So far, this is what we know. God choosing someone for salvation, that's electing grace. God being the author of someone's salvation, that's electing grace so far. Are you with me? Okay, so what's the basis or grounds for God choosing someone for salvation? Why does he? Why Jacob? Okay. Jacob, Esau. Which one's better? Which one's smarter? Which one's more sincere? Which one's going to make better life choices? Hmm. If I was God, I'd choose Esau. Jacob's a loser. Esau had honor. Jacob was a liar and a deceiver. And a little mama's boy his whole life. Notice God's choice to bless Jacob, not Esau, was before their birth. Verse 11, though they were not yet born. Notice God's choice to save or bless Jacob, not Esau, was before their performance, good or bad. Verse 11, though they were not yet born, and here it is, had done nothing either good or bad. Notice that there's only one difference between Jacob and Esau. There's only one. And it's God's purpose for electing grace. There's only one difference between them. And that is the grace of God. Hmm. 
verse 11, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. What's that purpose? Not because of works, but because of him who calls. You know how incredible this is? The basis or God's, what's God's purpose for electing grace? You know what God's purpose for electing grace is? To preserve salvation by grace alone, not works. God's purpose in election is to preserve and protect and highlight and send forth a righteousness received, not a righteousness achieved. The purpose of election is good news, not good advice. The purpose of election is to preserve the doctrine of justification. Wow. The basis for God choosing someone is grace alone. Now, there's all kinds of things about this, right? And that's what we're going to run down next week because there's going to be this asymmetry going on, right? Because one of the implications here is God alone saves messed up people, which means God alone elects, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies the whole comprehensive salvation. God alone does it. This means that God is the author of our salvation. And this means we are the authors of our condemnation. Do you see the asymmetry here? These are not symmetric. Those that have tried to make these symmetric go down weird, weird, weird theology. Like if you're irreligious, you go to fate and determinism. If you're religious, you go to hyper-Calvinism and double predestination. If you go the other way, towards moral freedom and ultimate freedom, you end up dislodging yourself from the sovereignty of God, and all of a sudden you're as sovereign as you let God be. Our God's as sovereign as we let him be. And when that happens, it's a salvation by works because ultimately we either, or the difference between Jacob and Esau is something in them. One's smarter, one's more moral, one's more righteous. And then in that case, how come Esau didn't and Jacob did? Do you see what happens? You and I have to, and that's why we're going to look at these objections. We have to keep two Two asymmetric realities in check. God is the author of our salvation, someone's salvation, a messed up sinner's salvation, and we are the authors of our condemnation, hands down. There's no other explanation. So we'll have to tease that out next week, right? Here's all I want to say, and we're going to get close to the end here. Yeah. If our understanding of election does not have justification in the center of it, in other words, if your doctrine of election isn't justification-centered, you don't have the doctrine of election. You have philosophy. You have speculation. You have, oh, who's elect and who's not? Is there a secret sign out there? Maybe it's not 666, it's 999. I don't know. Is it some spiritual pedigree? I mean, Spurgeon, he was so fed up with this kind of thinking that he's like, when peace says, stop asking whether you're chosen or not. Run to Jesus. Do you believe in Jesus? That's the issue because, because grace and salvation has been historically manifested in the person and work of Jesus, not in the ethereal heart of God are you supposed to and I supposed to kind of figure out. 
It's nothing more than a salvation by works to do that. Electing grace points to justification. Notice this is so fascinating. Jesus' death was a substitutionary work of love. Do you see that? In other words, Jesus was accursed. Jesus is the ultimate Paul. Jesus is the one that says, take, take them, curse me. Cut me off, God. Cut me off. Because Jesus pays the penalty for breaking the law, which means he satisfies the righteousness of the law, which means he achieves righteousness so you and I can receive it, not achieve it. But then not only that, you see all the working, the running, the willing, the exertion, the performance, the work. We don't do it. Jesus does it. He lives a life of perfect, perpetual performance. In the Gospels, you're seeing him love God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. You see the way he treats people. You see how he resists evil. He's not doing that for himself. He's doing it for you and me because we don't. He purchases. He purchases a positive righteousness because we don't have one. So now you and I can receive a righteousness, not achieve one. Can God's word fail? If the answer is God's word depends upon you and me, it will fail every time. Can God's word fail? If the answer is it depends upon grace and grace alone, It never, ever fail.